It's the episode that was years in the making. Dave has finally read Hawkspox, and I have finally read the Thrawn trilogy. The most overdue homework assignment is at last submitted. The byword begins now. Welcome to the Nerd Byword, the only nerd podcast with both a mutant X-gene and force sensitivity. Dave and I are here once more to bleed our work life into our pod life with a long-awaited, eternally teased episode in which Dave has read all of Jonathan Hickman's House of X Powers of Ten, affectionately known as Hawkspox, and I have finally finished all three novels in uh, Timothy Zahn's Heir to the Empire trilogy, perhaps better known as the Thrawn trilogy. But before we transition to today's Byword Big Talk, it is time for... Nerd News! Dave, I do believe you must be like our labor reporter at this point. I just deeply, deeply care about, you know, people. Uh, and, and equally important, I care deeply about the business of comic books. I, I want it to thrive and do well, because if it doesn't, that means we get less. <laughs> and uh, what's going on in the digital space, thanks to Amazon, is kind of a it's, it's kind of a pisser, to be honest with you, Chris. So uh, back in January, we hear, heard that uh, as part of Amazon's plan to cut 18,000 positions, uh, a number of comicsology staffers were laid off. Um, uh, the memo was actually leaked to Twitter, uh, and Comixology pro, uh, program manager Scott McGovern uh, got on Twitter as well and said, "Can confirm there have been numerous cuts at Comixology this morning, myself included." Um, now, the the thing, of course, here is uh, that th- that we have you know numerous problems already to begin with. Uh, because Amazon acquired Comixology and put their own stamp on it by, number one, integrating it with uh, the Kindle store to some extent, which has been a huge pain in the butt for many. Um, and then in addition, uh, you know, there's been the problem of uh, the app becoming actually worse and losing functionality thanks, thanks to this integration. Um, and then the additional problem of not being able to make purchases, particularly on iOS, through the app. Um, because any purchase made through the app, Apple gets a cut off of and Amazon doesn't feel like sharing. So it has become very unwieldy even to purchase comic books on Comixology. Um, and this has been really a, a, a leader in the space um, with, by all reports, people working on this uh, Comixology project that really truly you know, loved comic books and wanted to create the best possible experience. And, and it, the whole company has been kind of slowly run into the ground uh, by Amazon, um, and and this is not you know good news for comic book fans in any way, shape, or form, but especially if you are a fan of digital comics. Um, obviously, on the DC and Marvel space, we have you know DC Universe Infinite and Marvel Unlimited, um, but a lot of the the more you know indie, and I say that in quotes because we're, we're still talking about you know companies like Image and 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 Dynamite and IDW, etc. They don't exactly have their own necessarily uh, like streaming 
comic book services, they've been pretty much relying on stuff like Comixology. Um, and that is a revenue stream that is obviously not going very well for them. And this additional money is you know, good for the creators, good for the company to keep comic books alive. Obviously, we need this kind of stuff. And so Comixology going slowly down the toilet uh, over the last couple of years has been incredibly troubling to see. And now, you know, 18,000 positions being cut at Amazon, that's 18,000 people out of a job. That's absolutely awful. Um, and that hitting comiXology as well when, you know, that particular product has slowly been gutted, I guess is the best way to put it, removing functionality and, and services from it uh, to the point where a lot of comic book fans have been pretty upset with it. Um, it it's just not good news for the industry at large, Chris. Yeah, it's really it's really disheartening to hear um, because, you know, DC and and Marvel are backed by larger corporations, respectively. But, you know, with with folks like Boom Studios, IDW, as you mentioned, they really don't like they are solely in the business of comic books. Um, so they don't have like a fail safe and and comicsology, especially behind a large corporation like Amazon is is something that they're going to kind of depend on. Um, especially in this digital age that we live in. It really makes me wonder uh, if something like Global Comics, which we've teased before on our show and and, and use um, these little like indie spots will will kind of get some business from from those larger publishers. It's it, it remains to be seen. The, the other thing is, of course, that Comixology originals are a thing, right? So there have been mm-hmm. exclusive comic books being created for Comixology. And I cannot see that that is going to continue in a meaningful way much longer if they're continuing uh, to cut positions and, and you know wanting to put less and less money into that part uh, of Amazon's company now. So there's another uh, quote-unquote publisher, I guess, another outlet for creatives in the indie space that is either going to be diminished or go away. Um, you know, this is just not 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 a good sign across the board uh, for the the digital space. It's it's akin to something like, um, I guess, something like Hulu in a lot of ways. You know, you have uh, those shows predominantly like airing on TV, um, and they're making revenue from it like that, just like comic books are making revenue from you know printed and going into stores and stuff. But then that digital space is like that additional revenue stream that oftentimes can can keep you know lower performing books. Um, you know, on the shelves a little while longer. So it's it's extremely troubling when something like that starts slowly disintegrating in front of our eyes. All right, Chris, so uh, let's talk about trailers. You have one that you want to talk about. Yeah, sure. So Star Wars fans have been waiting with bated breath for a look at the upcoming third season of the hit show Mandalorian. Seemingly a unanimous hit amongst fans worldwide after the mixed reaction and toxic outburst that the sequel trilogy spawned, The Pedro Pascal-led series released its first trailer uh, for the third season with a March 1st premiere date. According to The Hollywood Reporter, uh, the trailer garnered a record-breaking 83.5 million views in the first 24 hours, usurping Obi-Wan Kenobi of the high ground with its initial 58 million. Footage details a reunion of Pascal's Din Djarin and Grogu, Baby Yoda for those still struggling with the name change, or reveal, I should say, Grogu's force-wielding and flashes of favorite characters from the previous seasons. Uh, The trailer also features a monologue from Mando about the meaning of Mandalorian identity and his plan to visit Mandalore itself, seeking atonement for his transgressions and that pilgrimage. Uh, Paul Soon-Hyung Lee's 
Captain Carson Tiva also warns of an ominous force of some sort that may very well be Giancarlo Esposito's Moff Gideon making a return, or as some fans have wildly speculated, um, Grand Admiral Thrawn himself, appropriate for today's episode, of course. Oh, we also appear uh, to be revisiting Order 66 for roughly the 66th time. Accompanying the trailer was a list of episode directors, including series alum Rick Famuyiwa, uh, Black Panther cinematographer Rachel Morrison, Minari filmmaker uh, Lee Isaac Chung, Grief Karga himself, Carl Weathers as the direct as a director. Uh, this one's exciting. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is Peter Ramsey. And she can do no wrong. Give her a whole feature Star Wars film, please, for the love of God, Bryce Dallas Howard. Dave, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, fair to say that uh, I think most Star Wars fans are at least to some extent excited about, you know, the Mandalorian coming back for third season. I, I, I can imagine that the people who didn't check out the Book of Boba Fett <laughs> uh, are a little confused, um, considering that they, they kind of resolved part of that plot line on that show. And suddenly Grogu's back with the Mandalorian. And everybody's like, I, I thought he left. So I think that's probably uh, one of the weirder, um, moments there. Not you know, not not everything has to be interconnected. It'd be okay if they would have resolved that in the first couple episodes of this season of The Mandalorian. Um, I don't think the trailer really gave us all that much to go on. So although I'm excited to see a third season, I didn't see you know a, a whole lot of information about how this is going to progress, other than he's going to Mandalore to to ask for forgiveness for taking his helmet off, basically. Um, and I and I think. Having a catchphrase is nice, but they they used this is the way like what four times in the course of less than two <laughs> yeah. minutes in that trailer. Like, okay, we get it. It's the Mandalorian, and this is the way we know. Okay, um, it it looks good. Don't get me wrong, and I don't want to come across or sound sound like a you know a, a sour fan or something. I'm excited for it. Um, I just didn't think that the trailer had anything to really smack me in the face and go, oh, holy crap, I can't wait for this. Like, it's just, you know, it, it looks like more Mandalorian, which is absolutely a good thing. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, it reminds me of that viral uh, that viral sound from the guy that does Nathan Fre- Nathan Fielder, who's like, I hope you're hungry for nothing. And, and like, because like, it doesn't really give a whole lot. It's like, it's very much like playing the hits. Like, you love these characters. Here they are again. Um, and you know that you're going to be there March the 1st, so why would we give you a whole bunch? So, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. And again, like, I, I want to be clear. It's not not that I'm, you know, not excited for it. I am. It's it's a good show. Um, so I'm, I'm there for it, and I will be watching. But, yeah, it, the trailer was very um, meh, you know, as, as far as trailers go. All right, that wraps up Nerd News for this week's episode. When we come back, our homework... Uh, is going to be turned in at last. Okay, welcome back to this week's Byword. And we've teased it for quite a long time. We may have spilled the beans on some of this, honestly, but here we are. <clears throat> In one of the longest homework episodes uh, ever in the works, Dave gave me the, um, in in addition, I have some additional novels as well, but the Heir to the Empire trilogy by Timothy Zahn, uh, he gave those to me uh, to borrow uh, probably about five years ago, and I have finally read them. And 
uh, ever since it dropped in 2019. I think it was my first ever nerd commendation. Um, The X-Men agnostic Dave has read House of X Powers of 10. Um, So is we're pulling the same standard questions from our homework episodes. Uh, House of X Powers of 10, written by Jonathan Hickman, with art by Pepe Larraz, R.B. Silva, and Marte Gracia. Uh, Dave, what did you like most about what you read? <laughs> so so first of all, I want to be very clear. Um, uh, X-Men agnostic to a certain extent. I was a fan of the old um, you know, uh, 90s TV show, obviously. I read some X-Men comic books back in the 90s as well. What a, what a time period, right? So, you know, those those iconic Jim Lee designs are seared into my memory. But as far as like modern X-Men comic books, I've been, um, you know, disconnected from that particular world. So I know the basics. I know who Cyclops is. I know who Jubilee is. I know who Storm is, you know, that sort of stuff. Um, but like the, the deeper mythology, I'm not super familiar with. I did read uh, Morrison's run, uh, on a previous homework assignment, I want to I want to say, and so I, I've got that under my belt. Um, you, you did, you did, you did. Uh, he who shall not be names, astonishing X Men. You read Morrison's based off of that. Yeah, so I've 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 read those two runs, um, as far as like more modern X Men comic books. Um, I do I do want to say up front that. <laughs> Uh, apologies hold up, hold to the up, hold up. let me say this let me say this this is your first jonathan hickman reading correct i believe so yes yeah that makes sense and i do want to say up front uh, uh big apologies to the the x-men fandom i don't think every one of my takes is going to land necessarily with longtime x-men fans but i think that has a lot to do with the fact that i have been not um and so I, I know you love this thing and I want to love it too. Didn't necessarily click with me in every way that I'd hoped. Uh, I found stuff to love here, but but please don't, um, you know, social media uh, smite me. That would be appreciated. Thank you. Uh, so what did I like most about what I read? I, well, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, on paper, this story hits uh, some of my, my my likes in storytelling, not just in comic books, but generally, you know, there's a time travel component. Um, we have, you know, flash forwards and flashbacks. That sort of multi-timeline storytelling appeals to me. Um, uh, alternate timelines, that kind of stuff appeals to me a great deal. Um, the art was obviously really, really good. I, I, I liked that a great deal. I think that the thing that stood out to me probably the most, though, the thing that clicked with me the most is also the thing that in my further reading, at least so far, got touched on the least. And that's Moira McTaggart, that whole that whole situation, the the power of, you know, being reincarnated, reinstart, restarting your life and uh, with the knowledge of the previous lives and then constantly making corrections to it and and trying different paths Um I found that absolutely fascinating and and the way she uses that power to try to like you know better the situation for mutant kind like I I thought that was easily the the most fascinating component of the story and I really wanted just more I you know I don't know it's been several years obviously since this came out and all I read like um the first six issues of each of the follow-up series that launched out of this this initial, you know, um, status quo change, I guess. 
Um, and I, I didn't see anything really addressed with that, but I would be fascinated even like to see a mini series about some of those previous lives and how things went wrong. And, and, you know, I think there's more rich storytelling in that character and in those 10 different lifetimes or whatever that she went through. Um, I find the character, the way the character was presented in this particular story, um, very rich, very interesting, and full of potential. And I wanted a, a, a lot more Moira to come out of this than than what I saw, at least in the initial um, launches for a new comic book series out of the status quo. So that, by far, my favorite and most interesting thing about all this was Moira, her mutant power, and and her various lifetimes. I wanted more of that. I think in in a medium where we get so many useless retcons or ones that are, uh, at least on Marvel's side, spawned by film rights issues, um, we're looking at you, Maximal family. Um, I think it's Jeez, probably the most additive retcon, to borrow Ash's term again, th- the most additive retcon that I've seen in, in recent memory. I think... It just works so seamlessly, even whether you're a newcomer to X-Men comics like yourself or if you're a long storied um, or you binged a bunch of it in recent years like myself. um, I think it just makes such it's so much clicks. Now, to pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, there was a Moira X book that was planned by Hickman himself. That is exactly kind of what you were wanting. But let's bring in the context here. And here's the C word again. This was released in 2019 and COVID and the delays and, you know, all the wheels stopping, stop turning uh, that delayed and then ultimately canceled that book. And then Hickman ultimately left uh, the X office. And so um, it was it was interesting revisiting this myself and kind of seeing how, unfortunately, you know, after Hickman's departure, we've kind of returned to the status quo, if you will, even though, you know, they were still on Krakoa and Arako and all of that stuff that, that he established initially, uh, we've still kind of gone back to protecting the world that hates and fears them. And that's, that's a bit disappointing. Yeah. And I think there's more to unpack there as we, as we go through this discussion. Um, but I, I, I think, that's probably the thing I like most about this status quo change is is not so much the status quo part, but the story part, right? And I feel like a lot of the story is designed to shift the status quo, and I don't think there's necessarily an immediate resolution to some of these strands planned because then it you know could potentially upend this new status quo that so many fans are liking. So I'm very interested to see how this story progresses, you know? Um, there's so many dangling plot threads I'm fascinated to see picked up, but because it's a status quo change, um, more so than a story, uh, I, I think I think we might wait years for some of the shifts uh, and some of the resolutions that, that somebody like me who's really interested in the story might be looking for. I think, I don't know, I don't know if you would want to jump right to this initially, but I think you'd be really interested in reading Inferno, which is, you know, after years of publication wise, at least of like uh, of Moira being behind the scenes, kind of hidden out by Charles and, and Magneto, like it's revealed that Moira exists and all this stuff and everything just burns to the ground, figuratively speaking. And the whole destiny and mystique thing, which I'm sure you got some of uh, with those first six issues 
um, some of the best stuff in the Krakoa era is Mystique and Destiny. Um, all of that kind of, and it and it was Hickman's kind of finale, um, and it was incredibly satisfying. Oh, I'll have to take a look at that. Okay, so uh, what do you think could have been better or just didn't land with you? <laughs> Here we go, oh, buckle man. up! All right. Um, I like I said earlier, uh, I'm really into like you know wheels within wheels storytelling. Uh, I like you know multiple threads, flash forwards, flashbacks, alternate timelines. All of this stuff really lands with me. I think my real problem with the series and the reason that it took me a couple of different times to get into it is that the House of X stuff worked for me, but every time that we went powers of 10 the the pox in the hawks so to speak the first few issues felt very very disconnected um so we have this flash forward and something is going on in the future but the context is not revealed until almost all the way at the end of these combined 12 issues so i felt very ambivalent about every flash forward until i reached the end and then i was like oh 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 that's why this is going on Except and for I Rasputin. Know, Except for Rasputin. You loved her from the work. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, 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 I guess the thing for me just is that, you know, mystery box storytelling is fun if you give me something to be invested in. And with those, with especially like the thousand years in the future flash forward thing, it felt so unrelated and so disconnected from what was going on in the present that every time that they flashed forward, I could not care less. And it felt like a chore to read those sections. And I know that this is this is a Hickman thing. Um, I've, you know, read up a little bit about his storytelling style and everything. And I, and I understand what he was going for. But I think there is a way to have your cake and eat it too with this kind of story by giving me someone or something in that time period to latch onto and to care about. Um, and, and then, you know, all of this will click. Like the... I think it's like halfway, maybe like issue three or four of Powers of Ten before you even see that that you know Moira is there and it's like in stasis and they're they're trying to do something with you know giving her that knowledge and then killing her off so she can take that knowledge back in her next lifetime. Like it's like halfway through there, so you have this extensive flash forward basically that feels just like a chore to get through. It feels like dead time. Um, the other thing that didn't land with me quite as well are the those info pages. I'm not opposed to like prose inserts and stuff in comic books. I just think the the, the formatting of them did not exactly rivet me. I, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, and I, this is going to sound odd, but I just very recently read something that does something similar, and I thought worked a lot better. And that is the new Star Trek series from IDW. They have um, datapad entries basically that you see um throughout and and they're they're kind of used for new readers to get context of um some of the background of some of the characters because it is you know steeped in continuity you have the return of ben cisco from the wormhole uh data works with him from next generation you have scotty from the original show popping up like there's all these different characters across different parts of the franchise so they use these data pad entries to kind of clarify that. Um, and they do it sometimes really in a playful way that really landed. It didn't feel so much like a um, a chore, you know, like an info download that you have to get through to understand the larger story. Um, one really comes to mind that was like um, 
in like a third third or fourth issue, a Q pops up. And so for readers that don't get who or what Q is, they had a page in the comic book that was a data pad entry of comments from various um, Star Trek captains that have encountered Q. You know, and it's like Picard, like very dry, like I really can't stand this guy. Janeway, you know, I think the Q are just a deeply lonely people. Like you understand even like the characters, the captains a little bit by how they view Q. And then it gets to Ben Sisko's log entry from that day. And it's like, Q came to Deep Space Nine today. I punched him in the face. And that was the, that was the whole entry. And it just perfectly clarifies that character while also introducing to new fans who Q might be, you know? And so I found those, like, data downloads, I guess, a little more playful, a, a little more fun, and a little less like homework i guess so th- those are the two things that really stuck out to me the flash forwards I-, I had trouble getting invested in until the end um and then and then those those data pages got me a little bit after a while they just seemed like a lot of work rather than you know fun if that makes sense here's the here's the crazy thing i don't disagree with you um and house of x is far and away um maybe maybe my favorite thing hickman's ever written um, but then Powers of Ten, I don't think it's as well executed as some of his other wheels within wheels, to borrow your term, stuff. Um, I'm still a huge fan of his initial Marvel run before he even touched the X-Books. Um, as a history nerd, you're going to love his S.H.I.E.L.D. book if you ever touch on that. It's like a six-issue miniseries where like these historical figures like Sir Isaac Newton... Uh, Nikola Tesla like travel through time and it's super sci-fi with history nerd like it's this wonderful blend Leonardo da Vinci it's so great so great you're gonna love that but um so I don't think Powers of X like delivered as much and I will also say being such a huge Hickman fan of like reading his complete idea that culminated with um the Secret Wars I think 2015 is when his Secret Wars when that released in 2015 um I, I think he got to tell his whole story. And I meant to mention this in the first part. I think my, my greatest disappointment um, with all of this in, and him leaving is he didn't get to tell that final story. And so like those loose ends are left to be tied up by other authors who have different ideas. And so we never got to see that complete story. And that's, that's the disheartening thing to me. Um, it's funny you say that about the data pages because subsequent stories, they do kind of do things like that. Like you mentioned with Star Trek, um, and, and some writers and most, if not all X books subsequently have those data pages for one reason or another. Some of them are journal entries that really hit close to home. Vidya Ayala did great stuff with their new mutants run with like journal entries that really kind of let you get a glimpse inside those characters. I'm thinking specifically of, of war paths. Um, uh, Jimmy proud stars of journal entries that were super emotional and beautiful. And then you have, and maybe, some... and, maybe and maybe, and maybe that's it, Chris, um, you know, now that I think about it, maybe it's the, the dry, the dry mm-hmm. nature of those entries. I, I, I think I it's know the initial. Are, are... I think it's the initial. I think because he does subsequent ones that are good. This is just like the 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 setting it up that don't really establish one. And I don't disagree with you. I, I I agree with you. Powers of Powers of Ten does not land with me like House of X does. Uh, Dave, what surprised you the most about Hawks Box? 
Um, well, you know, I, I tried to read it once before and kind of discarded it after a, little, after a couple of issues because I couldn't get into it. I guess um, what surprised me the most is that I actually found it in the end, once I was through the whole thing, incredibly enjoyable. Um, like I said, you know, the, the, the Powers of Ten thing was probably the weakest to flash forwards. But even there, there's some really big, interesting ideas, uh, you know, basically the the x-men version of like borg <laughs> popping up and wanting to phalanx. You know, integrate the phalanx integrate and assimilate and artificial intelligence and there's all these really good big ideas as a sci-fi fan that i totally feel you know like i said the time travel stuff like all these different elements uh, that are there i find in- incredibly enjoyable i don't think the execution always lands perfectly for me um but I found it much, much more enjoyable than I thought I would. I guess that's the best way to put it. Yeah, that's exactly the analogy. Every time I see the phalanx, I'm like, "Hey, Borg!" <laughs> um, and I, <laughs> I, I, you've encountered, I've encountered them. They're, um, they're a go-to like early '90s villain in X-Men comics. But then um, also, they're inextricably linked with the X books because of Warlock and his connection with the phalanx. Um, mm-hmm. But also. Um, show up in guardians of the galaxy books. And we've talked about both of our struggles to kind of get into those. Um, the, the initial stuff of, of annihilation conquest uh, was all the phalanx and stuff. And, and some of that I really, really enjoyed, but, but yeah. Um, yeah. Phalanx is, is one of those things where like, I have to just like throw my hands up in the air that I don't understand it to as much as I'd like to. And I do also want to point out another thing I really liked about it, which gave a sort of ambivalence that I think later books abandoned a little bit. Yeah, um, it you, you weren't exactly sure who the good guy and who the bad guy is at the end of this, right? Because the conclusion that, that Wolverine and Moira there at the end seem to come to in the future is that it's not uh, Nimrod, right? It's not the artificial intelligence. It's not the robots that are the problem. It's humanity that are the problem. And so, you know, that, that feels a little bit like a declaration of war. If you think about it, you know, you get this, you know, we're mutants and the only way that we can survive is if we need to take care of these pesky humans. So, you know, are the X-Men really the hero in their own story here? I, I enjoyed, um, I enjoyed that ambivalence, I guess is the best way to put it. Like, are they the good guys or not? And leaning into that kind of thing, um, you know, has the potential for some really interesting um, storytelling. So I really like that part as well, that you're not quite sure if, if mutants are quote unquote, the good guys or quote unquote, the bad guys here. Yeah. And I think what I, what I was interested in probably the most about house of X was like the, kind of like the great replacement theory being brought to the text with Orcus and like humanity being so threatened by the presence and just the existence of mutants that like, and and some of those data pages was like, Oh, uh, the mutant population is growing. We're going to enact Orcus protocols just because there are more mutants. And uh, so seeing that brought textually and like the intersectionality of that was fascinating to see. And, you know, Orcus being constructed of, yes, organizations like Hydra and uh, AIM, which were, you know, historically very adversarial and villainous, but then also having shield to make up portions of Orcus as well was really interesting and something to play with there. Uh, this is always a funny question to ask you when I make you read X-Men comics. What continuity or larger universe issues did you encounter? I have absolutely no idea who half of these people are. 
Um, <laughs> I really had. Now, I, I got an education. Let me tell you, like the five mutants that are involved in like the the whole resurrection protocols yes. thing. Mm-hmm. I, I knew none of them. Uh, Moira McTaggart. I had no idea who this person was. So I seem to recall that she was in like X Men First Class. I think as a character. Yeah, uh, but in the movie. don't pay any attention um, to that. She's just a random CIA agent and just regular American. <laughs> yeah. So, so there, there's that, right? But other than that, I had no idea who this person was. And I think to a certain extent, this was not necessarily a bad thing because I, I you know, this seems to me like the book has an, a fresh approach to a lot of these characters and is looking at them through fresh eyes, you know? And so like, I'm not that familiar with, you know, Mr. Sinister or even apocalypse all that much. Right. So seeing then these characters right away through Jonathan Hickman's eyes, I get the feeling that they're a little more complex and a little more multi-layered in this than they were depicted previously, maybe. And so I have no problem necessarily with that. I think I think I picked up on who these people are and what, what the context of them is well enough to enjoy the story. But yeah, I mean, that's a whole separate issue um, that, that the X-Men world has become so large and sprawling that it feels borderline almost impossible to know every nook and cranny of it. So um, you kind of have to just roll with the punches if you're not an X-Men insider when you read something like this. Uh, I mean, I mean, for for all intents and purposes, the the X books are almost their own publishing line. Um, because I, I, you'd be hard pressed to find another like sect of one of the big two that is that like self inclusive. Um, but yeah, I think I think for me, when I'm this is just personal experience with the advent of the internet and Wikipedia or like the the wiki pages of fandom and stuff like that. I think a lot of that stuff it, it really helps because I'll have multiple tabs open and I'm like okay, give me a give me a quick rundown of Blue Beetle or something if they pop up in a story that I'm reading. It's really helpful. All right, so you've you've detailed this a bit, but uh how do you think reading this text is going to change your reading choices going forward? Um, I, th- I think the short version is, in, in, you know, at the time I went ahead and, and I continued on for a little bit, right? I um, read like, like I said, about the first six or so issues of each series that launched in response to this. Um, and I, you know, that some of them hit better than others. I really liked Marauders. Um, I liked the, the, the book that was focused on, um, what is it, Captain Britain? I thought that book that book really hit well with me, and then the main the main X Men title where you kind of got to see more of like the inner workings of Krakoa and stuff like that. Those those kind of hit with me. There were others that didn't quite hit as well with me, um, but I I think the the biggest problem is is that I still stand as you said. It's kind of a separate publishing line almost. I still feel a little bit like the guy standing on the outside. I don't know enough of all of these characters to be able to sort of pick and choose the books I want to read. So I kind of take the all-inclusive approach. Like I'm just going to try everything. And when I do that, I get burned out very, very quickly on X-Men adjacent books. And so I burned out very, very fast in the wake of, of Hoxpox and was like, I'm going to have to take a step back from, from X-Men for a little while again before I try this again, which is a shame because like I said, there are things there that I really, really enjoy. Um, and the status quo shift that this caused is definitely interesting enough to to warrant a whole bunch of different books. So I, I get you know where this is all coming from. It's just as a as a newer fan or a fan that is only peripherally aware of some of the X Men lore, it is very very difficult 
to to stick with and find an in. If you look, uh, you know, comparatively speaking, at what's going on over DC Comics right now, for example, with Superman, you know, if I want to if I want to follow mainline main continuity continuity Superman stories, I got three three books, and that's it. I got Action Comics, Superman, and Adventures of Superman, which is going to be featuring Superman's son, uh, John Kent, and that's it. I can use those three books, and I can follow Superman. Um, and even at the height of, you know, Superman 90s mania, there were four, right? And there was one one issue a week, and I could follow the entirety of all of Superman's adventures. But when you're looking at a sprawling world like X-Men, and there's so many different characters to service, both major and minor, um, it, it's it's a little much to handle, I guess. So I'm going to continue to try to dip in and out and, and pick and choose series that I find interesting. But... Uh, as far as following like the entirety of the line, I don't think that's really feasible for me. And I don't think that's necessary because I haven't, there are, there are a a number of books, you know, at at the onset of it, I was doing the same thing, but you know, that's with my deep passion for it that I've built over the last 30 plus years. But I eventually tapped out on some of those books that just weren't landing with me. I haven't read X-Force in a long time. I haven't read Wolverine solo in a long time um so i kind of pick and choose what i'm interested in and i think that's that's one of the the kind of the blessings about being a team book like that um you know you'll have like crossover events in inevitably but like with with so many different titles it's kind of like an almost like a menu you get to pick and choose and i i don't think that like i get the gist of what's going on in those other books and i don't feel like i've missed out on anything because i'm not reading them that's probably fair all right, well, it's time to turn the tables. Oh, man. So oh, Wait, uh, wait, wait. Hang on. Before we do that, before we do that, I meant to ask this. Dave, who's your favorite X-adjacent character now? After all of this? After all of this. Moira. I find Moira by far the most interesting <laughs> character right now. <laughs> oh, I, 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 wanna, I just want to know more. I'm sure she's going to end up like being spun into some kind of like antagonist slash bad guy. Um, but as far as just being a really fascinating character, uh, as of Hoxpox, I would say I want more of her. That is the understatement of the century, my friend. Yeah, that makes me sad. Of course, of course, a character that I find interesting is going to right away be the, become the bad guy. Naturally, maybe that's maybe that's revealing something about you. Do you have a, a villain origin story bubbling at the surface? Despite despite my. Um... Despite my uh, country of origin, um, I am, in fact, not um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> fascistic in nature. <laughs> let's, let's put it that way, okay? Alrighty, so um, where do we go from here other than uh, I'm an old Star Wars Expanded Universe kid, um, and we <laughs> were talking about the Heir to the Empire trilogy. Um we're going to go ahead and have to start right away with a little bit of historical context here. Um, this was quite a homework assignment for Chris, and I feel bad to fa- about the fact that he used the old audiobook version to discover this. Because oh god, dude! Oh, I feel I feel like I was trapped in the rancor pit. My god! <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, just to elucidate a little bit, uh, the Heir to the Empire trilogy uh, began publication in 1992. Um, consists obviously of three books, uh, and this is Heir to the Empire, Dark Force Rising, and The Last Command, uh, all three books written by Timothy Zahn. Uh, these were basically the sequel trilogy before Disney produced a sequel trilogy. These were the uh, the first 
post Return of the Jedi stories that Lucas uh, authorized to be told. Um, and they kicked off a major expanded universe of Star Wars media that uh, told stories within the same continuity, continuing the story from the original trilogy on. Um, so we get uh, lots and lots of stories of Luke Skywalker um, and Leia and Han and all of those characters, as well as numerous new characters that were introduced specifically to that sprawling continuity. And then when uh, Disney purchased uh, Star Wars outright for a few billion dollars. Uh, they labeled all of this, uh, you know, extra media that continued the story of these characters legends and uh, as a, an alternate continuity, and then instead um, produced their own sequel trilogy that brought some of these characters back in a, a very different kind of continuity setting. Um, so my goal here with this homework assignment was to introduce Chris to some of the best that the old expanded universe had to offer um back in 90 in the 90s when there was no star wars content there was no mandalorian trailer there were no tv shows there were no new movies it was a complete dead zone of of content this is you know the beginning of the expanded universe that gave us stuff like shadows of the empire video games and all of that good stuff which took place um, within the same continuity, so I'm, I have a funny feeling that uh, you know hindsight is twenty twenty, and Chris is going to tear my beloved heir to the Empire trilogy a new one. But uh, here we go. I will try to muddle through the pain. Um, Chris, what did you like most about what you read in this trilogy of books? Mara Jade. Next question. <laughs> I I love her. She is by, she is by far the breakout star of this. Yeah, and and, and the only thing that I haven't seen in the new canon, you know, that's the only glaring thing that we're lacking. And the only thing that I'm desperately waiting for, because we've gotten Thrawn and he's probably the breakaway star from all of this. And in addition to her, but uh, I mean, we could have that clone Jedi that none of us know how to pronounce correctly. Uh, Joris Sabaoth, I guess. Sabaoth, who knows? Um, it's such a Star Wars name. Um, yeah, I think I think Mara is is the clear star here, um, and and you know Thrawn is being this cold, calculated villain that really, you know, when you when you unpack that and and being able to create such an adversary that's so compelling and so popular um, in in the medium of of a paperback novel is really is really something, and it, and it speaks to. Uh, to Zahn's you know storytelling abilities to to build this this person um, to give them such a great description that you're you know you feel chills when you're reading this um, or listening to a horrendous 1940s era recording of it um, <laughs> but um, yeah I, I really I really did overall enjoy uh, what I read um, but but Mara Jade and just the and it's funny because like the enemies to lovers trope is so like done to death, but I think it's done well here. Um, and I think a lot of agency and a lot of kind of room to grow and of like a lot of voices given to Mara Jade in this book. And I think that's what I enjoyed the most is like you legitimately get to see uh, the other side of the story and it's not just like she's bad and the messianic character just made her fall in love um but i it's 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 easily mara is the best part of these books 
And you know, I know you you kind of latching onto like this enemies to lovers trope. What I really really love about the introduction of this character is that at this point, although they kind of make an uneasy peace, um, it would be years before they would actually um, you know uh, explore this in further books as a potential relationship. Um, in fact, there was a. There were rumors going around for a while that she'd be paired off with Lando Calrissian. There was um, uh, a trilogy of books that came uh, a couple years after this that dealt with um, Luke falling in love with a woman called Callista. Um, who that that was a whole another story, by the way. That's that's pretty complex. Um, and so those two kind of circled each other and were in each other's orbit for a long time um, before that actually became a relationship. And I always appreciated that this was really sort of a a take your time, slow burn situation. I don't think I don't even think necessarily that the publication group or the various authors were clear that that's the direction they were going to take those two characters in until much later. Um, so it never felt tropey to me. Um, specifically because of that. It kind of had a lot of room to breathe and develop naturally. I, I always liked that about that. Yeah, I get, I, definitely, I, got, I got definite shades of one of my favorite flirtatious relationships in Star Wars of, of Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, Asajj Ventress. So, like, that was... If we don't get Luke and, and Mara on screen, per se, at least we'll have that. Ah, yeah. Seeing, seeing those two on screen would be so, so deeply satisfying. The thing about Thrawn too, and I wanted to throw this out there since, since you talked about how he's, you know, one of the best things in the book. I love how very different he is from Darth Vader and the Emperor. You know, he's, he's not this, he's not this cackling lunatic that is like, or rules with fear, you know, he's, he's just this incredibly cunning, calculated, cold individual. It's a very, very different villain for Star Wars and was such a breath of fresh air. Uh, at the time that this came out, you know, comparing it to the original trilogy and then getting this. And you got to remember this, you know, this predates the prequels as well. So, you know, this is a completely different feel um, uh, for for Star Wars villainy at this time. It was it was so unique and 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 really, really awesome. And I'm, I still to this day, I, I adore that character. I think he's just such a great antagonist. All right. So that brings us to <laughs> what do you think could have been better, Chris? The audio recording. Um, <laughs> I'm so. We should have found that fan that fan audio book that that they well, produced. I did. Much I did. I did. I, did I found it. I found it. But he's only done the first book. And by the time uh-uh. you, by the time you sent it to me, I was already halfway over halfway done with Dark Force Rising. Yeah, I think my only hang up on Zon's writing is he does spend a lot of um, time and energy in the 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 micro details that aren't really appealing to me like there are much more compelling things that i want to get back to um like breaking up asteroids honey how long do we need to talk <laughs> about breaking up rocks my god and that boy loves a forest he loves a forest <laughs> did he write it in a forest um oh i neglected this one um i need to go back to the what i liked most and i totally forgot about my homies the nogri because oh my god that was such a genius plot thread to intertwine throughout the entire trilogy and then for that to be the final spoiler alert for a book that's been around 30 years for that to be like the end of thrawn is his most trusted you know bodyguard is being his end because of this lie that's been unraveled oh i love the nogri stuff that 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 may have been right up there with mara the best part of the book and how strange that we've not seen the Nogri adapted somewhere oh, in Star Wars have. media because they, 
we have you are just agnostic to it because you won't watch Star Wars Rebels. We have Rook. Nope. I guess I'm gonna have dun, to dun, dun. Get into Rebels. The plot thickens. Um yeah. uh-uh. And so back to what could have been better. I feel like um, it, it was very much of its time. And that's no insult at Timothy Zahn. We grow and we become more um, aware of how to write characters that are not of our own backgrounds. I found particularly uh, the way that he wrote a lot of female characters, notice, most notably Leia, to be very 90s era. Like, this is how we write women. I felt that she was very kind of put in a box. And on a pedestal is like this princess. And um, I don't feel like she had enough of that kick princess vibes that I wanted to get. Um, You know, of course, she was pregnant. But at the same time, um, I wanted a little bit more agency from her. But I I will chalk that up to the, you know, it being the 90s. I will say that it was annoying. Um, we we had a lot of stuff that we kind of like the joke kind of died with the original trilogy. So making Han sit through those meetings was annoying. And just like, remember Han? He hates this stuff. And it was like come, some, some of it was like playing the hits from the original trilogy. And then I wanted to go past that and, and you know, making him sit at a table with uh, Mon Mothma, Mon Mothma, not Mon Mothma. That was another Ugh, hang up of Coruscant and Moan Mothma. That was deeply disturbing. Um, also, shout out to my guy, General Bell Iblis. Love that dude. Yeah. I'm and glad and she was that. so petty for that. Like, y'all was like kids, and she wouldn't like ask him to go. And it was too late, too. Like, we could have saved yourself some, uh, your pride. And so you and your flowy sleeves can go on somewhere, Moan Mothma. <laughs> I actually um I actually thought the, the the politics stuff in particular was really fun in here because we hadn't seen it in like the prequels at that point. Um and I don't think the prequels necessarily did a very good job with the politics stuff. Um but the complexity here, um maybe it's the political science uh nerd in me. I appreciated like tr- trying to uh deal with enemies that are not your enemies, you know, like they're technically on the same side as you, but they're still antagonists. And how do you deal with that? How do you push forward in a situation like that? I thought that was a nice new wrinkle at the time for Star Wars. Uh, and then, you know, the prequels try to do it much, much less successfully, I think. So and I detailed this before, and I'm but I'm I'm dancing around a little bit. I'm sorry, but I'm just like remembering. Oh, you know, it's three novels. It's 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 three novels. So um uh, I, I I detailed this before, but but Borskphalia as an adversary is just such a geniusly well done. I, I said this on a previous episode. I wanted to beat the crap out of that furry little turd. Um, and, <laughs> and so, what you mentioned the politics thing, and that's what made me think of it. And and just like that's such another genius scheming plot by Thrawn to plant him on the council. Uh, and it's just such a such a smart thing. Um, because I really hated that little furball's guts. <laughs> everybody did at the time too so what surprised you the most about this whole series chris probably that i enjoyed it as much as i did i thought it was going to be a retread of a bunch of old stuff that it didn't really interest me um the fact that i was um able to overcome my hatred of the audio recording to enjoy what i read i i, I had to like multitask and like play some video games while listening just to like get past that, but I, I really did enjoy it um, to to a great degree, and um, and it just surprised me that like 
also that that Filoni and company have integrated so much of this. And like I said, the only glaring omission thus far, fingers crossed, is Mara, because uh, the rest of the stuff, for the most part, um, you know, failure, not so much, but that's OK. We can leave him. <laughs> but I think Mara is the only one that hasn't been integrated. And, you know, fingers crossed that we can get that moving forward. Any uh, continuity issues you ran into reading this? Uh, I think I detailed this before in a previous episode, but it was just super weird, um, contextually speaking, um, you know, kind of revisiting this when after its release, we had both the cre- uh, prequels and the sequels. And so I kind of had to reorient myself because it was very disorienting. So that was that was, that yeah, was it about is- it. That was probably the only larger issue that I had. I also want to I also want to check out these comics too cuz that's interesting to me now and kind of being able to get that visual medium. I'm I'm fascinated by your situation of coming to this um completely divorced from the time period, you know, because you it's not like you can delete your knowledge of the prequels and the exactly. sequels. Yes. Um and 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 put yourself into, you know, 1992 and there's not been, you know, any Star Wars in almost 10 years and and suddenly boom there's this, you know, trilogy of novels that continues the story. Um, it's, it's, a, I think, a big disconnect, and I'm, and I'm actually pleasant, pleasantly surprised that you enjoyed it as much as you did, um, given that we know so much more now about the Star Wars universe. Here's the crazy thing, too, and maybe this surprised me the most. Again, I'm jumping around. I'm sorry, but um, some of the things that you're saying is kind of sparking my mind. The, the thing that really surprised me the most is that most of the stuff can still fit in canon. Like, because we have, we're, we're continuing on with these in-between quills, if you will, with the Mandalorian, but this is the same time period that most of these books take, take place. If I'm not mistaken, nine ABY or what after the battle of the hour or whatever, like, it feels like we can fit there. There are some like technical hangups that are like not really consequential, but a lot of the stuff we could still see if Lucasfilm wouldn't be such cowards and just recast Luke Skywalker and, and, and the big three. Yeah. And, you know, I've mentioned, um, I mentioned this before, you know, you, at most you need a couple of tweaks here and there, like, Oh, you want Leia pregnant? Well, boom, it's, you know, it's Ben. Hallelujah. Um, it's instead of the twins or uh, you want, you know, Mara Jade and Luke to end up being together. Well, then she perished when, you know, the whole attack happened on the, uh, on the Jedi Academy. There. And, like, and I think you said, I think you said that would piss off Luke and make him, you know, the grumpy old curmudgeon. And that would make so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. There are, there are, there is much, I think in the, um, in the old expanded universe that was really, really good and should survive. Um, and there are, Plenty of things that were really, really crap and should never be talked about again. I'm looking at you, Crystal Star. You turd of a book, you. Um, so, <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, how do you think uh, reading this text will change your reading choices going forward? Or, to put a kind of a different spin on it, could you see yourself revisiting some more old expanded universe stuff to get more of this kind of flavor? When I have time to read the actual physical medium and not the audiobooks, absolutely. Because um, I can't do that again. So I immediately almost like to wash my hands clean of it. I went back to the Witcher audiobooks and that's like a night and day difference. Here's a here's a bonus because I know this is your very first nerd commendation. 
um, those Witcher audiobooks are like the creme de la creme. Like that's exactly what that medium was made for. My previous nerd commendation of Wolverine, the long night and like that return to like the old serial radio program of like the thirties and forties with ladies like resplendent with music and sound effects and everything. Um, the fourth, I think it's the fourth book of uh, the time of contempt the Witcher audiobook and Peter Kenny is like the best in the business as far as like narration and voice acting. Um, in my opinion, as, as you of course detailed oh so long ago, but they add those elements to it. Like Siri is running from the wild hunt as she does in the video game. And like you get thunderclaps and lightning and like these creepy sound effects where I'm like turning the lights on in my room as I'm listening to this. Cause it's terrifying. So, um, <laughs> Yeah, as far as to bring it back to to the expanded universe, I'm definitely going to check out those comics. I think Dark Horse made those, if I'm not mistaken. And then um, I'm going to also read some of those other novels that you so generously lent me oh so many moons ago um, when I have actual time to sit down and read them. Yeah, I have I have mucho uh, mucho mucho uh, recommendations for you when it comes to the um, expanded universe. There are corners I would avoid, like the plague. Um, they were very disappointing at the time, even. Uh, but there are there are things uh, that are fantastic. I still I still have mad love, for example, for the first four books in the X Wing series, which take place um, focus on minor characters, uh, take place right before. Uh, the heir to the empire trilogy and are basically the story of how a uh, Coruscant was retaken after the fall of the empire. Um, that, it's, you know, Coruscant. They, they, it's Coruscant. That, it's pronounced Coruscant. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry about that. I need to, I need to work on that. Um, but, but that story of how they, you know, go back to what, you know, the Imperial center and retake Coruscant is such a good story. It goes over four books and, and the characters are, are awesome. The whole thing is Ooh, really good. I think you'll like air, it. Is All, that air battle stuff? Yes. But the I, writing air is, battles, uh, air battles, I check out. So on movies and books, I don't know what it is. Air battles are just not my thing. I bet you ten to one this will this will convert you because Michael Stackpole does an incredible job. Plus, it's not all flying. Uh, they also are kind of more like a, um, they do like ground attacks and stuff too. But but the big point here is if you like Mar Jade, you'll probably also really like uh, Mirax Tarek, another very strong female character introduced in the novels. I think you like her. Okay, let's hopscotch again because I'm jumping right back. My dude Talon Card, my dude. That whole thing with, like, uh, who was the ship thief guy? That doofus. Where they, like, tried to blackmail him as, like... You remember the attack on, like, the smugglers' union meeting or whatever? Mm -hmm. And they tried Mm -hmm. to pin it back on card. And the way that that worked out was just chef's kiss. Loved that scene. And they trapped him in it. Oh, so good. I do have to ask one additional question. Um... You know I have mad mad love for Luke Skywalker as a character, um, and I always bemoan the fact that we don't get a lot of Luke and his Luke and his prime uh, as far as live action media. We got kind of skipped over all that, so I'm very curious what your take is on Luke in this series. Yeah, you he's can overrated. kiss my butt. Um, <laughs> he's overrated. That's been the nerd byword. <laughs> yeah, I I just. Ugh, there's only so many messianic characters like I never do wrong. That's why I love The Last Jedi is be like, it makes sense. Like you're that like optimistic and like shaky haired, like optimistic guy. And 
I like Luke the best in Return of the Jedi because he's wearing all black and it's like, I don't know about this whole like, I'm a Jedi like my father before me. It's just so played out and it just doesn't appeal to me. Like he never makes the wrong decision ever. And like, that's why I vibe with The Last Jedi. He makes plenty of wrong decisions in the expanded universe, let me tell you. Um, But um, I I will say this. I think uh, the appeal of Luke Skywalker to me falls in the same ballpark as the appeal of Superman. You know, it's the eternal optimism, the hopefulness, the, 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 the one character that just won't give up and will keep pushing forward. Um, and, and I like, I really like his portrayal in this series in particular. I think it works really well. I, I guess for me, I don't see, I, I'm frustrated by his naivete, if you will. And like, I guess part of that, as I've grown older, I don't know if I've grown more cynical and stuff because I was an eternal optimist and I, in some ways I still am. It's just like, I, I just need a touch more of pragmatism from him. And, and I did see that in the third novel finally. Um, and so like the second half, it really picked up in the second half of dark force rising. And I really, I think I enjoyed the last command the most of the three. Um, I don't know. That last part of dark force rising was great. Um, the first, the first book, and I detailed this previously, it was a lot of setting up kind of what you were talking about with, with Hawksbox, uh, particularly Powers yep. of 10 is like setting up the stuff and like, we will now be telling this story. Um, and, and so I finally started vibing with him, um, you know, towards the end of the, of the trilogy. Um, also, have we not talked about that that Looney bin? That stuff was great too. Like the infighting between Thrawn and Sabalf, like that was great. Um, what did I not like? Uh, what I think could have been better? Can we get a little bit more creative in naming clones rather than just adding a vowel? Luuk, <laughs> <laughs> <Luke>, really? <laughs> like, and I made this joke to you via text. That that all too famous scene of Vader saying no is just him looking at all the clones of himself. <laughs> like, what is that? <laughs> Come on. I will I, I but do I agree. Will, I do I will agree say with you. F- you made this point to me in person. The idea of clones not just being stormtroopers. Um now the Clone Wars did a lot of heavy lifting and giving agency and individuality to those clones of Django Fett, but the idea of clones being psycho jedis um is great love that yeah I, and that that was probably the the thing uh the pre prequel uh perspective on the clone wars that i found mo- most interesting is like imagine you create a jedi who's a clone and he can't handle being you know another presence that it's identical in the force and then they like go a little nutty like yeah that would be a clone war right can you imagine <laughs> bad 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 jedi clones like this this slaps like i'm, I'm there for it fighting and again over, i know fighting over who has the most uh vowels in their name <laughs> that's right um Although I will also say, you, you mentioned, you know, like, it's the 90s, of course it's clones. But I appreciated the fact that Zahn was like, you know, they mentioned this idea of the Clone Wars offhand in, like, you know, A New Hope. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to, you know, play with that idea a little bit. Because, again, this is before the prequels, before we saw the Clone Wars. So him being able to pick up, you know, one obscure little line, you know every fan 
watching that first Star Wars movie when when Luke says you fought, uh, he fought with my father or with my or uh, Kenobi says I fought with your father in the Clone Wars. Everybody in the in the theater watching that movie for the first time like do what now the what please tell me more you know. So the fact that Zahn picked up on that and and played around with it a little bit I thought was really cool. Alrighty, folks, there you have it. That's our big talk. We finally survived another homework assignment. Uh, we'll, we're going to have to put our heads together and see what our next homework assignment is going to be. Maybe something a little shorter for Chris. I think I overloaded him just a bit this time. Um, but uh, we are very curious to hear your take on both Hoxpox and the Heir to the Empire trilogies. Find us on social media on Instagram and Twitter at NerdByWord or individually at that Nerd Dave and at that Nerd Chris. We would love to hear your thoughts. And after a short break, we're going to be back with some nerd commendations. So stick around. And just like that, I've been usurped as the MC of this episode. Yes! <laughs> the usurper! I've taken, I've taken over. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not actually Dave. I'm Dave, the clone. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Chris. Chris! Chris, yeah. All right. You, you take it away, my man. <laughs> Well, that was something, but now we're back for our final segment. Uh, Dave, you are really playing fast and loose with the rules here. A Jeff Johns book. Okay, look, um, I have my reasoning here, uh, and that all comes back down to Black Adam. You remember a few weeks ago when you and I reviewed Black Adam? And I said to you that the movie was fine, but from a JSA perspective, it just made me feel a little icky because the J- the JSA was basically like diminished. It didn't feel like this the organization it should be. Well, I, I, it put me in the mood for some JSA books. So I started with some, you know, golden age stuff because the JSA... Um, is the original superhero team at DC. It predates the, the Justice League. And there are some really fun, you know, old books. And you have some really uh, fun characters that are not, you know, as big. You get some Hawkman, but you also get some Spectre. You know, you get the original Flash, Jay Garrick. You get Alan Scott, Green Lantern. Um, and then I wanted to take it a little bit more in the modern age. Um, and I remember that uh, a few years after... Um, Zero Hour, which is one of those big DC Comics crossovers designed to fix some continuity, we actually got a a, a new JSA book. Uh, and it was launched, I believe, by um, Robinson, who also wrote the uh, the new Starman series back in the time, which still stands as like one of the great DC comic books ever. Like Robinson on, on, on Starman is like totally worth the price of admission but after six or eight issues um suddenly uh there's two names popping up on the book that you probably know uh one of them is jeff johns and the other one is david goyer um and goyer uh kind of um wanders in and out of the book as a co-writer um and and johns has a, a pretty long run on this book um going i think to issue 75 or something um and then the book continues with another writer for a handful of issues before being canceled. Um, and then it's relaunched a few years later in the wake of um, the 52, not the new 52, but 52, the actual 52-week comic book series. Um, 
And it is again written by uh, Jeff Johns for the first 25 or 26 issues before uh, somebody else takes over again. And, you know, although the book is, is good under these other hands, as, you know, as much as it pains me to say, because Johns has become a very divisive figure, um, I think this is some of his, his best comic book writing work. There is a real love in these for these characters that is present throughout. And it also has the much more superior take on, you know, the Justice Society tangling with Black Adam and him becoming sort of a member and having to work with them and becoming an antagonist and having to work against them. That That is right here and is is much, much better. It's called Black Rain uh, and is a much superior book. Um, but I also like sort of the mission statement here, which is that the, the, the JSA here um, acknowledges the history of the characters and, and says, look, these were, you know, these are old men, you know, Alan Scott is an old man, Jake Eric's an old man, but they're there working with, um, with younger heroes. And their goal is number one, to take the legacies of people that they knew in the past under their wing, which is why you have black canary there for a long time, because in DC comics lore, she's actually the second black canary and the original black canary was part of the justice society. Um, but also, uh, as the book progresses, the idea of making better heroes, of you know taking heroes on, under their wing, of instilling to them morality and values, uh, and making sure that they are not you know running around killing people left and right, um, and so that mission statement and the experience going back to World War II on the book, um, those sorts of things make it really distinct from something like Justice League, in that it feels much more like sort of a family. Than, than necessarily a superhero team. Uh, they're, they are, you know, headquartered in this brownstone. Um, you know, they have rooms there where some of the younger heroes actually live there while they're learning. Um, you have what is probably Jeff John's greatest creation. Uh, Courtney Whitmore, Stargirl, is, is on the team. Um, you get legacies for some very, very interesting um, characters, you know, like the Golden Age Adam, um, you get a legacy for Our Man, actually a couple of different ones as the book progresses. You get a legacy for Wildcat. Uh, you get really sort of a history lesson for like Golden Age um, characters from from DC. And at the same time, you get new and interesting twists and takes on those. Dr. Midnight in particular is a real standout in the book. Mr. Terrific, I think you would adore Mr. Terrific, Chris. I think he is, he is so far up your alley. Um, I, I think he would instantly become like your your favorite DC Comics character. I think he he's like right there, man, and you just need to get to know him seriously. Um, so believe it or not, although Johns has become you know a, a very controversial, difficult to deal with sort of character, um, this book shines incredibly. The relaunch, uh, Justice Society of America, also does something incredible. It brings on Alex Ross as a co-writer, co-plotter. Um, and they basically do uh, sort of a a sequel um, slash in between slash continue. It's very very complex, but like a multiversal sequel to um, Kingdom Come. And if you've never read Kingdom Come, it's probably one of the most standout DC comic stories of all time. And so seeing you know that version of Superman appear. Um, and how he deals with the events of Kingdom Come and everything is absolutely chef's kiss. We get several 
a gorgeous new pages of Alex Ross art in there. He also does the covers, um, which you know are absolutely mind-blowingly beautiful. Um, there's just so much good stuff. Oh, uh, uh, Jakeem Thunder is another character I think you would really like. He's just really, really cool in this. Um, there's just so many characters that come through the Justice Society that you probably wouldn't be familiar with uh, as a fan of like modern DC comics. Um, and I think it's totally worth, you know, sticking your nose into um, this this classic sort of Justice Society, this old school approach to heroism. Um and these very old-fashioned characters bumping up with new legacies of the people that they knew when they were young. Uh, there, there's just so much to love here. And it's probably uh, one of my all-time favorite team books uh, coming out of DC Comics. I think, to me, uh, John's Justice Society is almost up there in a very different way, but almost up there with, with Morrison's JLA. It's just that good of a team book. So if you're interested in more Black Adam, um, if you're interested in like, you know, legacies of Golden Age heroes, um, th- this is the book. It's absolutely worth sitting down and reading. Hokey Pete's. Wow, that's high praise. Um, you know what? You just reminded me that I haven't read Kingdom Come yet. So that I think that's the first thing on my to-do list um, based off of this. But uh, Golden Age comics is really an era a medium that I haven't really touched at all. So I'm, I'm definitely intrigued on checking this one out. Oh, and this is also where you get Cyclone. Oh. She was created for the relaunch, just the Society of America, when Johns came back and wrote another run on it. Uh, she was one of the new characters introduced there. And she's a lot of fun too. So yeah, there's just, it's loaded with good characters, man. All right. So what is your nerd commendation this week, Chris? Well, a team book with characters that I think you'll love. Um, I'm talking about Strange Academy. Um, It is written by Scotty Young with art by Umberto Ramos, who's one of my all-time favorite artists, uh, particularly for his work on Spider-Man. I love that cartoony style brought to life, um, and it's perfect for the aesthetic of this book. Um, So Strange Academy is a magical school um, set in New Orleans, founded by Dr. Stephen Strange. Um, And, you know, from the onset, of course, you're looking at this, like, isn't this Hogwarts? um, This is so much more than that. This is so much more inventive, so much more creative. Um, It's not created by a gigantic transphobe. Um, And it's, it's really just like a diverse cast of what it means to be a magic wielding character. Um, You've got uh, twin brothers from Asgard in Alvi and Eric Brorson. Um, You've got Herman Aguilar who is from Mexico and has like spiritual powers that like are evocative of like Aztec mythology. He has like these astral projections of Jaguars. It's super cool. Um, you have Toth, who's from Weird, Weird, Weird World, and who's basically made up of crystals, like his whole body, and he cannot speak. Um, you've got Doyle Dormammu, who's the son of Dormammu, the dread Dormammu, and he has to deal with that legacy um, and everybody, you know, treating him as the child of one of the biggest adversaries in the Marvel Universe. Zoe Laveau, who's probably my favorite character, um, she is revealed to be a zombie 
and she has this amulet that help helps her maintain this like human form is really fascinating. And then you have Emily Bright as the main protagonist, who's kind of meh, but she um, kind of like has this like uprising and it's really fascinating and um, really has some, some great characters from the magical Marvel universe as like instructors. You've got um, Dr. Voodoo Jericho drum as like basically the headmaster. You've got uh, Ilyana Rasputina magic from the X-Men books uh, as one of the instructors. You've got Wanda Maximoff uh, as an instructor. And so it's just like this really kind of fun coming of age book I got some definite vibes of like that it chapter one of like these kids getting into stuff that they shouldn't be goofing around playing with magic. Um, the entire idea of like magic having a cost is, is in play here. And so it was just a really, really fun book. I believe it's 18 issues. There is a follow-up series um, strange Academy finals that I have not touched on yet, but I really, really enjoyed this series and um like just like the really imaginative, like what is it, you know, what can you play with? Like, you know, that property that shall not be named is just like mostly white kids in Britain, you know, that are human for that are human and anything that's seen as other is kind of like bad and awful. But like you have one of the kids here is a frost giant and like, that's so freaking cool. And like, so, um, I really, really dug this book, and um, I know that Zoe has popped up in the Midnight Suns book, which I'm going to be reading based on how much I absolutely love that game. Um, and so I'm really, really excited to see not only um, like this book to continue, but also to see these characters like introduced into the magical universe. And, and, and quite honestly, I'm interested in reading more magical Marvel books now. Yeah, I'm here for this. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put that on my list. I'm sure this is on... Um... Um, what you call it? Unlimited, right? Yeah, Marvel Unlimited. All, all eighteen issues of the first series. Yep. Well, so this should be uh, that that that's really an easy sell for me then because uh, I can jump in and check it out. I always like books that focus a little bit more on obscure characters because they're not so beholden to um, continuity and um, not so beholden to like fan expectations. You can play around with them a little more without having a huge backlash. So I'm I'm very interested in checking this one out. I'm 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 here for this. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Nerd by Word. We thank you so much for riding along with us. Be sure to like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, Spotify, uh, so many others, and nerdbyword.com. And of course, find us on social media where we want to hear your thoughts on all this. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at nerdbyword and individually at that nerd Dave and at that nerd Chris. And be sure to hit up the link in all of our socials for our Discord server, for cool merch. And as always, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.